Welcome to Healthcare Uncultured. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I am the host of this Healthcare Unfiltered podcast, uh, and I'm really honored and privileged that you are tuning in to listen to this episode and to other episodes every Tuesday morning, morning in and morning out. Thank you for your support. Today's podcast is really, really uh, important. I am extremely excited about this podcast. It took a while until we were able to actually organize it. But it is about uh, uh, adherence to chemotherapy and to oral oncolytics. All right, so let me just set the stage for you so you at least understand what I am trying to say. And most of you already do. The reality is that... um, Most therapies that are being approved by the FDA for cancer are treatments that are given orally. And I think it goes without saying that uh, the schedule of the drug and the schedule of the medication plays an integral role in the patient being adherent to that medication. It's also important to know that you cannot assume that the drug is working or not working unless you are making sure that the patient is receiving that drug. I mean, if I'm taking a treatment and then my disease progresses, did it progress because I did not take the treatment or did it progress because I took the treatment and it did not work? And there are many reasons why patients do not take the treatments and they do not really take their therapy. It could be financial. It could be side effects. And I'm going to tell you one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to adverse events and side effects. And when I read the paper and the most, what they mostly report on is grade three and four side effects. Well, you know what? Grade two is not walk in the park as well. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you need to look it up. Look up for me, grade two neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy, and look up for me, grade two diarrhea. And then you tell me if these are okay side effects to have. And if you're having these side effects, it's going to be difficult for the patient to actually receive that treatment. And then adherence becomes an issue. So with more therapies that are actually uh, approved uh, by the oral route and with the more complexity of treatment and the more adverse drug-drug interaction, adherence becomes an issue and we need to solve this. And I came across a paper that was really written by ASCO staff and by Dr. Donald Harvey at uh, Winship Cancer Institute and who is the director of the phase one clinical trial unit and the medical director of clinical trials office. And I really wanted to talk to him about this because it is important to know how the pharmacist role has evolved over the years. Uh, And I'm gonna tell you when I was a faculty at the University of Chicago, I couldn't do anything without having involvement of my pharmacist and the pharmacist team because they were right there when I needed to start an oral oncolytic therapy in terms of side effects, in terms of toxicity, in terms of adverse events, drug-drug interaction. So I think it goes without saying that while physicians are involved, obviously, in prescribing the therapy and deciding on the treatment and so on, you cannot be successful without the involvement of an entire team. And the pharmacist is a very integral member of that team. And especially now, as we have more oral therapies and more oral oncolytics. And with that, I have invited Dr. Donald Harvey to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered. 
He is a professor in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Emory University School of Medicine. He is also a professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Chemical Biology at Emory, the director of the Phase I Clinical Trials Program at Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University, and the medical director of the Clinical Trials Office at Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University. So I'm very excited about this. I hope you are as well and uh, uh, thanks for listening as always. And also thank you for your support to this podcast and for, uh, you know, I mean, again, if you want one of these famous t-shirts, you need to let me know and direct message me and I'm more than happy to make sure that I will send you one. And uh, make sure you, of course, visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com and check out all of these episodes on YouTube on my channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you for your support. And without further ado, Dr. Donald Harvey on Healthcare Unfiltered talking, pharmacists and drug adherence. Okay, folks. Well, I'm excited. As you know, always I get excited when I tape uh, the Healthcare Unfiltered uh, podcast. Um, this in particular actually is really a very important episode because it did take a while to schedule the time. So you you have to realize it's a labor of love when it actually we are able to bring this uh, to all of you. But I'm really excited about my guest, uh, Dr. Donald Harvey, because we have... Um, a lot of things we're going to talk about, but in all transparency, what uh, what sparked the idea for me was a paper that uh, Donald was the senior author on uh, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. I will link that in the show. And, and then I thought it's really important to talk about the pharmacist role in the journey of care of patients with cancer and, and what has changed. And, and a lot of you're going to love this. I'm telling you, you're going to love this. Donald, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your first time on my uh, podcast. It won't be last as long as you don't mess things up. You know how it is. We're, very, we're, we're on a very uh, tight show here, but um, yeah. I want to make sure you introduce yourself to listeners and viewers, uh, who you are, where you work, and tell us a little bit about you, how you end up uh, where, where, you're, where, where you are right now. Yeah, Chadi, thank you so much for the invitation. And and it's a pleasure to be on this incredibly successful podcast. And congratulations to your work in getting these lots of these messages out there. I'm a fan of the podcast and think that, you know, the, these conversations are, are great. So it's a it's a real it's a real honor to be here today. Uh, so I'm I'm Donald. I'm a pharmacist from Rome, Georgia is probably the the fundamental way to put it. I uh I was really, uh, I'm a professor at Emory University in the School of Medicine now and at the Winship Cancer Institute. Uh, I direct the phase one program here and a medical director of the clinical trials office. All those are, you know, nice titles. I certainly enjoy the work, uh, but fundamentally my job uh, is really to help patients have better treatments through medicines uh, for their cancers. And so really that encompasses lots and lots of different things over a career. Uh, now having done this work since 19, gosh, 97 or so in different capacities, whether it's rounding on inpatient teams of transplanters, meeting my wife on a coagulation consult service in Chapel Hill, or here daily where we're trying to write grants and get papers out and try to change the 
the discussion around drug use in cancer patients from early phase clinical trials to post-marketing strategies and, and everything in between. Uh, really what drives me on a day-in, day-out basis is, is seeing patients do better on therapies than have they have been doing historically and to help other people to help execute those uh, those desires as well. So I've been at Emory since 07. Um, you know, matriculate. I'm a pharmacist in a physician's world in a school of medicine. Uh, that's been really fun in a lot of ways. I had a lot of great colleagues. Uh, our, our, uh, both of our friend and colleague, Fadlo Khoury, uh, enticed me to come to Emory in 07 to start the phase one program. And I've had a very, very large group of just fantastic uh, physician colleagues and many, many others here at Emory to help us grow the phase one program uh, and do the work within that space and a lot of pharmacists along the way as well. Donald, what um, when you you know when you finish your uh, pharmacy school, is it right now customary? Like, what? Take us through a little bit of what you do. Um, I hear about residencies in pharmacy. Yeah. I hear about specializing. Like, for example, somebody would do oncology, others do cardiology. How, how? Take us a little bit through the world of pharmacy training. Yeah, so my pharmacy training is a little bit different than how things are, are done today. Uh, so today there is an entry-level degree of the PharmD for many, many, many pharmacists. And so that degree is, is you know, given by the, the institution. And then uh, most individuals will then become licensed by boards of pharmacy, much like medicine um, and physicians do. Uh, but then afterwards, pharmacists have a lot of different paths they can go on. So one path is going into retail and community pharmacy, and another path is to do residencies. And so residencies, what are called PGY1s, and so we follow a lot of the medical model in terms of our career and pathways. And those PGY1 residencies are focused generally in hospitals and institutions uh, where individuals get exposure to a lot of different areas of care for pharmacy. It can be administration, it can be inpatient medicine, it can be surgery, it can be intensive care, and of course, you know, the path that many of us have gone into is cancer. And so once that PGY one year is done, you can then go into a second year of residency and specialize in a specific disease area. One of those is hematology and oncology. There also, uh, you can do a lot more work in pharmacogenomics and pharmacogenetics, like, you know, the Chicago group's done really great work on that and including pharmacists and physicians in that training. You can also go into intensive care and pediatrics. Uh, and ambulatory care and cardiology and infectious disease, all areas where, of course, drugs are critical to patient care uh, and management of drug therapy is, is also important. Uh, some subset of us then can go into different areas as well, including fellowships, which are research focused. Uh, many go into industry as well as other areas, and many go into academia to really uh, focus in on uh, the academic side of, of what's happening. I think all of us as pharmacists, though, really do try to keep the patient at the center of everything we do, uh, understanding drug therapy and, and helping our colleagues, our physician colleagues, our advanced practice colleagues, our nursing colleagues, all of us really to help are there to help patients get better treatment with drugs for their cancer. Um, and that's really kind of integral to every pharmacist. We believe in education as a profession, whether it's patient education or colleagues education, and we believe in effective drug therapy uh, for patients, regardless of the disease that they're under care for. 
Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, you know, um, I think when I was at University of Chicago and one of yeah. my listeners, hopefully she's going to be listening to this show, uh, Dr. Sandeep Parsad, you, you, uh, she has always been um, uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't do a lot of things without just calling her and her team and just asking the questions that are important to patient care. It's really, um, you, you're spot on with that. But um, I, I'm a little bit intrigued. Uh, so when Fadlo called you to start the phase one program, it, is it a little bit unusual for a pharmacist to actually initiate a phase one program, at least in the other models I've seen, oftentimes, Clearly, the pharmacist is integrated into it, but the physician is starting the program. I'm intrigued by that. Am I am I far off from what actually happens, or not at all? I mean, I think about all the great phase one programs across the country, and and so many that we interact with and are fortunate to interact with. I mean, Fadlo and I, when I first came to Atlanta, uh, my wife is a hematologist. She's the head of the hemophilia program here at Emory. Um, so I affectionately refer to her as a bleeder and a clotter. Um, but she's, <laughs> she and I met each other talking about factor eight pharmacokinetics. And hey, channels. it's very romantic talking about factor yeah, eight. What can you, what's better? Scotty, I swear to God, I thought our kid's first word was going to be thrombin. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, we came to Atlanta because she had a fantastic opportunity here. And I worked at Grady, uh, our inner city, Cook County equivalent uh, here in Atlanta, of, and, and helped to take care of cancer patients there. And Fadlow trained at MD Anderson. And so he was very much in the mentality of, of a uh, pharmacist being very, very, very active in direct patient care. So he and I would round and I would write chemo, cisplatin, docetaxel, uh, new diagnosis, squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Or I'd fill out the doses, prehydrate, antiemetics, get the labs, et cetera, et cetera. And he would be on his phone because that was Fodlo. He was always networking uh, and he'd sign the orders and we'd talk about the patient. But we created, a, I think, a pretty nice working relationship there. And then in 07, he came to me and was like, Donald, we are looking to create a phase one program at Emory. I want you to come take a look at it. And I said, Fodlo, I'm not trained to do that. Like, I'm a clinician. I round on patients. I help my colleagues. I educate, et cetera. He's like, you can do this. I said, no, nah, I can't. I'm not trained to do this. And he goes, yeah, you can just come over, take a look, <laughs> meet with some people. And Father is a very, very persuasive person. Oh, I know. You know, these Lebanese people, you got to worry about. I love my Lebanese colleagues. The <laughs> diaspora is a fantastic, fantastic one. Uh, and so all of uh, many, many of my colleagues really, truly are Lebanese. It's been a fantastic group to work with. So the and so he calls me. I was like, yeah, OK, I'll come over. I'll give a talk. You know, worst case scenario, it all falls apart. I go back to being a rounding clinical pharmacist. I'm still licensed. I've got, you know, a really, really uh, a sugar mama for a wife, an academic hematologist. You know, what more could I ask for uh, in terms of being a kept man? So I came over and tried to, you know, try and figured it out and interviewed for it, met with a lot of people and thought, you know, I really want to try to do this. Uh, and I think it's a really fantastic career opportunity. And here's some things I would say about a non-physician kind of leading the group. Number one is I was forced to create a very matrixed phase one program. So I reached out to all my physician colleagues, all disease areas, uh, breast cancer, lung cancer, obviously lung was a very big part of it, myeloma and Sager, and so many of the heme side of it as well. And being a non-physician, 
I think I was more, I was probably a little non-threatening. I wasn't there to take over any turf. I'm not here to, I'm here to create a program. The only way that this program was going to get off the ground is if I had partnerships with people who felt invested in the program. And so it really, to me, was a nice meeting because the other part of it was I, I was PI on all the trials my physician colleagues could care less about, drug interaction studies food effect trials, renal insufficiency, all the Clin Farm stuff that I love that gets me out of bed and PK modeling and thinking about all that stuff. Uh, and my physician colleagues like, nah, I don't want to do that. So I, we were able to then give all the first in human compounds and all the really good uh, kind of sexy stuff uh, to my physician colleagues to run them. And then in return, we asked for their input in taking care of the patients on trial, along with our advanced practice providers. And so we are a very multidisciplinary program and I'm the leader of it, but I'm I the one and I'll try to tell people I'll take all the blame and none of the credit because I want that to I want it to be patient focused and I want particularly junior faculty to grow in this program. Suresh Ramalingam was critical to our success early on and he still is. He hasn't come into the unit. He shouldn't. He's the executive director of our cancer center. And so he supports the program and, and is important to it, but he doesn't need to be seeing patients in the unit right now. Um, our assistant professors and early associates do. And then many of them will move back into their disease areas to focus on those disease areas. And that's okay. So we're a training ground. We're uh, an incubator for new processes. And we, of course, want to help patients get new therapies as, as soon as possible. You know, I know I, I've known Ram uh, uh, Suresh since we were fellows, of course, yeah. different institutions, but yeah. I'm not gonna, we're not going to give out uh, our age. We're not going to give out our age. But uh, let me let me talk a little bit about how you've seen. Look, Donald, you have a wealth of experience. So I, I'm like I feel like a kid in a candy store because I have so many questions to ask you. But one of the important questions is how you've seen the role of a pharmacist evolve yeah. in general, in the hospital setting, and then maybe in, in the care of cancer patients. I did my residency in the mid nineties yeah. and, and, and my fellowship in late nineties and, and so on. And it's just, there, there's a difference when I became a faculty and I, the, the way the pharmacist integrated, the way, uh, it, unless I was completely oblivious when I was in training in the mid nineties, Take us through how things have evolved and, 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 and the role of a pharmacist currently in patient care, uh, whether outpatient or inpatient, because most patients are being taken care of in the clinic, not in the hospital. Right. No, great, you know, great points. And I think one thing that, you know, I will say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Like the, there are many people in the pharmacy profession who began the process of moving out of the inpatient pharmacy where chemotherapy, TPN, all that was made. And it was a product-based profession where you're really focused on the admixture and the thing that was going into the, the product that was going to be delivered to the patient and administered by nurses under the care of physicians. And all of that, that is still a very, very important part of pharmacy. Over the years, and oncology is a great example of this, that mentality and that expertise started to expand beyond the product and how it's used and how it's integrated and interactions and adherence and all of those other things that, that are very, very important, certainly in cancer, where the pharmacists began to move out of, the, of that pharmacy area 
and round and beyond rounds and be side by side with our physician colleagues and our nursing colleagues and subsequently our advanced practice provider colleagues. And so what, what started that though? Is there like, it was like, is there something that started this? Do you think it was a medical error? Was like something happened where yeah. somebody thought, you know what? The pharmacists need to, to round with us. We can't just round alone. I think a lot of it came from the academic centers and academicians who were like, look, we want to improve quality. We believe we have something to offer and we cannot be focused on a product because that product can be made by robots. Even back then, it can be this can be dispensed and done by someone other than a human being. We have to own the knowledge of drugs, like the deep knowledge of drugs. And in order to do that, we have to be seen honestly by our physician colleagues as the drug experts in the room. We're not gonna take over the care of the patient and, and nor should we. It always has to be a team-based product, team-based approach, but we have to own the knowledge. And that first movement of faculty was really stimulated by academicians, by organizations such as the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, a huge Chicago presence, by the way, in that group. Uh, UIC was huge early on. And so that movement and shift really was kind of the late 80s, mid to late 80s into the 90s when I did residency as well. So when I was there, there wasn't, there wasn't occasionally like, who are you? Uh, when you'd show up to rounds, you're like, well, I'm the pharmacist. And like, okay, we have a pharmacist on round, so that's great. And now it's like people are looking around like, where's my pharmacist? I need a pharmacist. I can't function here without that individual. And that is a big, that's, that's good. We need to be valued, but we cannot rest on current laurels. And all of that then transformed in cancer, particularly, as you said, elegantly, you know, that care delivers to the outpatient setting. So it used to be that you had the cancer pharmacist in an institution, and they would round on Hemonc, BMT, whatever it might be. And then over the years, like, for example, even just at Emory, there were four oncology pharmacists in 2007. Right now, they're like 22. Oh, my God. And so we have a myeloma pharmacist. We have a GI pharmacist, GI outpatient pharmacist. We have two leukemia pharmacists, inpatient and outpatient. And so this subspecialization just followed the medical model in a lot of ways. So I, I got I got the inpatient model. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, kind of more seamless. I think you know you, you you're rounding on the inpatients. The pharmacist is part of the team, whether it's a BMT, GI, all of that stuff. The outpatient piece, mm-hmm. I find it a little bit more challenging. And I don't know how you how do you actually how have you been able at Emory or elsewhere broadly overcome that? And I tell you why because once the patient leaves the hospital. And now the retail pharmacist is a little bit involved, somewhat peripherally, but you know they have maybe a little bit of a one to five percent of an input into whatever, depending on what the patient asks. Now you've got the outpatient physician and and clinic, and maybe they have a pharmacist in the outpatient setting. I mean, I don't know, but how are you able to keep the continuity of pharmacist involvement after discharge? Yeah, it's an important question. So first of all, you mentioned one of those key points of healthcare, and that's that transition, that inpatient to outpatient transition. And you look at some 
uh, cancer types and treatment types in cancer like BMT, for example, where that, that so much is driven by drugs and so much can go wrong in reconciling inpatient to outpatient care. That's where pharmacists have stepped in along with many other, uh, many other subspecialties, nursing, et cetera. But really pharmacists have helped to make sure that transition happens. And then in the, the outpatient side, I mean, just think about it, Chadi. All of the drugs that have been approved by FDA, we've turned a cancer when you were and I were in training that was basically small cell and non-small cell. And within non-small cell was squamous and non-squamous. Yeah. Now it's RET, RET mutated, ALK rearranged, EGFR mutated, KRAS mutated, blah, blah, blah. It's turning into a bunch of orphan diseases, but more specifically, there are drugs that go with those diseases. And we are in a place where in an academic medical center, we have subspecialists in lung cancer and who manage those, those patients and those drugs. Just think about in the community setting. If you are just the avalanche of drugs and data that are hit that are hitting you uh, across all cancer types, how can you live without a pharmacist there? I mean, to me, that the community setting is like, my God, how do you do all of this by yourself or with a limited team with all of these patients you're seeing in the community setting? To me, that's almost where the the bigger frontier is. We The academic centers have been the leaders in a lot of ways, but the real need is in that 80%, 75%, whatever number you want to pick of patients that are treated in the community setting that may or may not touch an academic center, but really by practitioners and oncologists that are, that are just drowning in information about new drugs, new approvals, when to use them, and how to get access to them. And that's the other thing that pharmacists are, I think, integral to, along with social workers and nurses and others, is helping patients get access to those drugs, helping patients learn how to take them, because my God, the Clint Farm is less, is more complicated rather than less with food, without food, on a PPI, not on a PPI, spaced, et cetera. All of that patient education, I believe, should be owned by the pharmacist personally. And I'm 100%. very- I, I, I totally endorse that. I mean, I, we, we don't know. I mean, it's just simply, honestly, we know maybe the big ticket items of certain interactions, but- yeah, I, you know, I mean, half the population is taking statin or Prilosec, and I have no idea whether you give a, a fatinib, whether it actually matters with one of them. Right. But, uh, you know, speaking of which, this is a nice segue. I think we can both agree that one of the most important changes that happened in cancer care is the more drugs being used orally uh, versus IV, sub-Q, or IM. And there, so there are more oral oncolytics, and I forgot the stats, I don't want to misquote, but if you look at the drugs that were approved by the FDA over the past couple of years, the majority, in for cancer, the majority are oral. Yep. And I think with that comes, you know, the difficulty of adherence, because if the patient is showing up to the IV chemotherapy suite, you know they got the IV drug. Otherwise, they can't. And I can tell you as a practicing physician myself, uh, there are times where I felt I was doing investigative work and I was able to find out that my patient was getting the pill every other day because, frankly, simply they thought it, it, it can last them longer because they want to pay the copay. I mean, there are other reasons for that. And, and you and other colleagues of yours uh, on behalf of ASCO have clearly identified this as a major issue, and that's why you really uh, published that paper that we're going to talk about. 
So with that long-winded introduction, I think number one, take me through your opinion about these oral oncolytics and and as a pharmacist, adherence and being on medications is core to your what you do. What are the solutions you're proposing? How are we going to navigate all of these things that are happening with the more expansion of oral oncolytics? Yeah, so Chadi, adherence to me, we have to think about a few things in cancer. I think sometimes we get a little too complacent and a little too isolated in the way we think about drug therapy and cancer. Specifically, if we're trying to turn cancer into a chronic disease, where we are expecting patients to self-administer medications and come back and check in with us on relative, you know, on different areas, we, in some instances, are doing it completely wrong. If we compare ourselves to cardiology, uh, you know, we don't cure hypercholesterolemia. We manage it with statins. Patients take those drugs every day. Uh, they may have some adverse events from them, uh, but they self-administer and we expect that they do it. We can monitor their cholesterol and see how it's going. We don't have that same flexibility within cancer. Uh, and so what we've done in cancer in some ways is, is wonderful because we've got new drugs and new targets that are effective or challenged by resistance uh, in terms of long-term efficacy. Uh, but we certainly have these drugs in our, in our armamentarium now to, to fight cancer. And we have in certain instances elected to give them to patients in ways that make little to no sense to them. They make pharmacologic sense and toxicologic sense, uh, but if you're asking a patient to take a drug on days one, eight, and 15, or days one to 14 and take a week off, or um, you know other intermittent schedules, nowhere else does that happen. Very rarely does that happen, I should say. I shouldn't be nowhere, but very, very rarely do we ask patients to do this outside of cancer. And I think we need to all remember that as we develop new drugs that hopefully have better therapeutic indices. And the other thing is that if a patient doesn't take their medicine correctly, um, for whatever reason, access, side effects, et cetera, in cancer, sometimes the only way we know is if the cancer progresses. And unfortunately, we see that all too often, independently of drug therapy, uh, that cancers become resistant, et cetera. And so adherence is something that I think has been overlooked for far too long uh, because patients don't come into the healthcare system as often on oral therapies. Uh, we don't engage with them as often as, as we do with IV therapies. Uh, and so those, those areas of adherence to me are, are critically important and I believe do need to be owned by the pharmacist overall. I think pharmacists need to be front and center in this conversation. And, and I've gotten some pushback on the paper, Chadi, from uh, particularly on Twitter and other outlets uh, saying that, look, you're forgetting about nurses in this area. You're forgetting about advanced practice providers. You're forgetting about physicians. The pharmacists will never forget about our colleagues. We believe though, that this is a drug issue. We believe, I believe that these drugs and this issue has to be owned by pharmacists. We have to be front and center and dictate to, to the healthcare system as a whole. We have the expertise, we have uh, the desire, and we have the bandwidth to help patients be adherent to therapies that are being used in oncology. And interestingly, you know, looking at this, this paper and the workshop that, that, that led to the paper, 
HIV is actually converting back a little bit to IV therapies uh, because they are bioavailability. They're bioavailable at the time of injection. You know, all of these aspects of bioavailability come into play. And some of our biggest challenges begin at the earliest phase of drug development. When you have a drug that has a brand new target, we want to get it to patients really quickly. And that's important. If it's a very good drug, it's really, really important that we accelerate its path to commercialization as fast as possible. When we do that, there have been some costs along the way. Bioavailability. So if a drug has eight to 10% bioavailability, you're asking patients to take four large tablets, which can be a pretty big pill burden, maybe once, maybe twice a day. That can be difficult for them. An esophageal cancer patient, if that drug causes a contact nausea, uh, that becomes problematic. And in drug development overall, we said, look, you know, we're going to define dose by the first cycle of treatment and grade three and four adverse events that happen there. And then we're going to use that data to inform how much drug we give to patients. Patients could care less if their platelet count is 45,000 on day 15. It yeah. doesn't matter to them. Yeah. They really, really don't care. If yeah. they have grade one nausea for a year and a half, that's not good. That's a matinib. I mean, yeah. that's that's what we're asking of patients overall. We have to change that paradigm. And we may not know about it, and patients may not know how to manage it if we're not in constant interactions with them. So we believe pharmacists are critical. And I tend to agree with you that Obviously, it's a collaboration. Nurses are involved, physicians are involved, pharmacists are involved, but there should be a quarterback. Yeah. And I'm from the camp that for adherence and making sure the issues are the, the quarterback should be the pharmacist here because there are elements of drug-drug interaction that uh, many other um, folks may not be aware of. So take us through who decided to do the workshop, who participated in the workshop, and then let's go over the findings or what are the elements. I think the, the paper was very, again, well-written. Despite the pushback you got, that's the world of academia. Of course, you're going to get pushback. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. But, you know, like, you know, the uh, you, you, you actually highlighted several uh, options or like uh, proposed solutions. So take us through the workshop, uh, when it happened, who participated and who sponsored it, and then what were the findings and, and, and so on. Yeah, so the workshop um, was a joint uh, a joint effort by FDA and ASCO, and so FDA is really looking to make sure that they they have and hold workshops that are advancing conversations in oncology about drug therapy in lots and lots of different ways, whether it's outcomes or other areas. And so this was a, a, a workshop that was co-planned by each individual organization, and and typically with these workshops there'll be a point person from each group, and so I was the point person from ASCO. Uh, and my friend and colleague Shaley Aurora was the point person from FDA. And so we worked along with ASCO and FDA staff to really craft a two-day workshop that would address adherence in all of its, all of its entanglements. Um, everything all the way from soup to nuts. So I was very interested and encouraged in the earliest discussions of that. So things like dose derivation formulation. We don't use controlled release formulations in antineoplastic therapy. We don't use, I mean, there are so many things that we do in cancer that are not done, that we don't do in cancer that are done in other fields. And so those early on, those workshops included uh, pharmacologists and, and people thinking carefully about how those drugs 
drugs are used, how we define dose, side effects, how we report side effects in trials and how we report adherence overall to different therapies. Uh, and then dosing strategies to help that. Then there were those adherence conversations in certain populations. And so we think about it, the average cancer patient takes eight medicines in addition to their cancer treatment. These are, you know, median age of cancer diagnosis is 60s for most cancers, uh, most solid tumor cancers. And so that is a time when comorbidities are gonna be coming into the mix. And so we talked about interactions, ways to, to prevent interactions, ways to manage them. Uh, my friend and colleague, Benya Molina at UNC, a uh, great, great guy doing wonderful work in CML adherence and adherence to therapies there and really great grant funded work to try to help that process go. We talked about economics. What is the economics of this? Are, is it drug prices alone, which is a very big part of it? More importantly for the patient, it's co-pays. How does adherence work societally? How do we help patients be adherent in various ways, get access to drugs? So there are individuals from social work and health policy uh, that helped us to really craft a message around that part of it. We talked about special populations, elderly patients, and I mean those who are you know, 75 and older with cancer, how do they take their medicines? Breast cancer, prostate cancer, older cancers of CLL, cancers of even older patients that are more common and how do we help them uh, to identify solutions and manage adverse events? Is it education alone? I think that's a big part of it. Um, but more importantly, I think the more we can help develop drugs that have wider therapeutic indices, the better will be. And, and the solutions to it, I think, are tacked on in lots and lots of different ways. So, so let, let's go over that. I mean, I think the I think the problems are vast, and I'm a firm believer that we can't solve everything right away. I do believe in incremental success and incremental steps that we can actually take to to reach the holy grail. What are the proposed solutions that you jointly came up with? that will mitigate the adherence problems? I think there, we're all stakeholders in this, Chadi. We're all academics, industry, FDA, and everyone else. So the solutions that we put forward are things like, please, pharmaceutical industries, optimize your formulations before you come into a trial, a first-in-human trial. Make sure your formulations are as risk-free as possible. And they've done that in so many ways. Think about it. How many drugs right now are CYP3A4 inhibitors that are anti-cancer drugs? You can mitigate these strategies through good medicinal chemistry. And I think about some, you know, the, so the KRAS G12C space, Sotorasib, it was an undruggable target. So medicinal chemistry, even at that earliest point, that is critical to think about adherence at that moment. If you have to give very high doses of drugs across lots of different pills, how do you, you know, think about adherence in the background, make your schedules patient friendly, make your adverse event profile and management patient friendly. In a trial, FDA, if you see that X numbers of patients needed dose reductions or that grade two nausea was a problem, was that on or off antiemetics? What is the best strategy for managing nausea and diarrhea in patients that are getting your drug? Publicize that. Put that out there for clinicians to use, to understand this is what was done in the trial. These are some of the solutions that were put forward in the development phase of all this. Uh, make sure that the adverse events are known and that it's clear. 
don't just focus as a society on grade three and four adverse events. Grade two diarrhea is an increase of six to eight stools per day over baseline. Yep, I, 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 you're absolutely great. Two toxicity is terrible. It, it's real. And yeah, imatinib is so much better than pegylated interferon. And the next generation of those drugs needs to be better than imatinib. I think we rest on our laurels too much. On the economic side, minimize copays, make sure that patients or Before do the economics, Donald, I want to yeah. talk just a little bit about the first one you mentioned, which is yep. uh, optimize the schedule and, and, and the formulation. Yep. How much of this is indeed in the control of um, pharma? In other words, how much of this, well, you just can't simply give the drug unless you take the drug twice a day because of the half-life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of this is not really intentional. I mean, I would tend to believe that most manufacturers, it's in their best interest to make sure the schedule is easy because if the patient is adherent and they're actually uh, getting, they make money. I mean, you know, they won't make money if the patient won't take the drug. So, but but how much of this is under their control indeed versus, you know, you're the pharmacist, uh, so I don't know how much they can change. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. One is there really haven't been many drugs, there've been a few, but many, many drugs that have come out that are oral have been optimized for schedule. So there's there's half-life and there's on-target activity and there's toxicity and all those things come together in the way that we think about schedule. So for example, capecitabine, short half-life twice a day, 14 days on, a week off. Um, that was due to recovery and toxicity uh, to allow for that to happen. Um, but even just even more fundamentally than that is bioavailability and mitigation of bioavailability in ways that help you to create a structure, focus on a structure uh, that is going to allow, and a formulation that is going to allow the maximum amount of drug to be absorbed in the right places at the right time to mitigate toxicities. There are no TID drugs right now in cancer. I mean, you know, the flutamide's dead. That's the only one I can think of that was a three times a day drug to treat cancer actively. So there are ways to think about metabolism route, um, clearance route generally, and ways to extend its ability, a, a drug's ability to go for twice a day is reasonable. I certainly don't have an issue with that. But I think at the end of the day, Um, Anything we can do, whether it's coding of a drug, absorbing in the small bowel versus, you know, proximal small bowel or long absorption periods rather than than dose dumping effects, for example, um, those can lead to, again, more nausea, more diarrhea over time, et cetera. So I do think there's opportunity early on, and it is in the realm of the pharmaceutical industry to maximize formulation. Again, it's with the tension, though, that we want these drugs to get to market as quickly as possible, and let's deal with the after aftermath then. Uh, but I think we failed patients when you look at a certain drug, which will remain nameless, that had a 78% dose reduction in its phase three trial. The registration it trial. Is hel- it is healthcare unfiltered. We named it's linvatinib. It's linvatinib. Yeah. I mean, the thyroid registration trial, there was an 80-ish percent frequency of dose reduction in a clinical trial population for their registration data. Wow. And that's due to adverse events. People don't dose reduce because of desire. I mean, you don't, you know, we start at the top. We in oncology have said, look, we're going to send this amplifier to 11 and there are going to be people who tolerate that dose of 11. Um, But 
we're going to make you tell us that you can't tolerate it. Yeah. And then we're going to drop you to seven. And we're just going to assume that it's going to be okay. Because if we cause pain, we think we're going to get gain. And that is not true from an exposure PK perspective. And that is also a conversation around that impacts adherence. Because just think about it. If you're giving a patient a drug and you don't educate them well, they go home, they take three days of it, and they have massive diarrhea. And they just say, I can't take this anymore. And they stop taking it. Then, you know, what have we done? What, what, is, what value have we offered to that patient and in the development phase society for, for what that's going to, how that's going to help cancer treatment as a whole? And I worry about that. I think there are lots of opportunities that can be and solutions that can be implemented before drug approval. Um, that can help to mitigate a lot of this. The other thing is I would hope that competition in the marketplace would change some of this. I think there are like 27 PARP inhibitors now, maybe, uh, maybe a little less. You, you, you meant 270. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but I would hope that there would be some thought that if a company is developing a PARP inhibitor, hey, let's look at the ones that are out there and right. let's try to make them more tolerable. You know, let's try to make something more useful for patients you know, like ACE inhibitors, you know, PARP inhibitors shouldn't. Oh, very, very, very good. Very good point. How about the financial piece? I, I interrupted you. I think you were starting to talk about the financial piece and the copay. Let's go there now in terms of that possibility, that issue. Yeah, so there's a great paper again from UNC and my alma mater. So I, I focus on them a lot. But in 2014, it looked at copays of $30 or more were associated with reduced adherence. Patients didn't pick up the drug. And 30 bucks, you might, you and I might look at it and go, that's eh, 30 bucks a month. That's no big deal. Uh, we are, you know, we have to we have to go to the socioeconomically disadvantaged population or those who are functionally poor uh, and look at, all right, if they're trying to pick between their medicine and, and other vital aspects of their care, we have to make this as easy as possible as a society. Um, and yeah, it's lowered drug costs. I think that's a big part of it, lowered prices, but I also think that it's insurance costs and other areas negotiating price, making sure insurance plans make it as easy as possible for patients to get therapies. And the other thing that's happened in oral therapies is that specialty pharmacies have come about. There are specialty pharmacies now. And back when I was training, you know, we really believed in the concept that patients should get their drugs from a single pharmacy, a single place that you can then have the pharmacists look at interactions, tell them don't buy that calcium over the counter because it'll interact with your, you know, uh, with your tetracycline. Uh, don't, you know, it, don't take that big dose of ibuprofen because, you know, you're also on an ACE inhibitor example and you have renal insufficiency, blah, blah, blah. So all those things that you could focus the care at the drug level at that place. Now we have fraction, fractured care. And, and drug patient drugs are coming from all over the place. Well, the place where that gets integrated is at the oncology center. And so again, comes back to, I think the pivotal role of the pharmacists and all of it and access to care. And so dropping the economics of it, I think are, uh, are still very important and drug costs are a big part of it. So we talked about reformulating the product, optimizing the schedule, optimizing the drug. We talked about the financial piece. What else did you guys discuss? Uh, do new tools to measure adherence, to make sure that we understand adherence early on. So, you know, for example, in psychiatry, 
there are film coded tablets used in schizophrenia management where it is known when a patient, because of the film on the tablet, when the patient actually ingests the medicine, uh, it is a is an app sent to is a, a signal sent to an app on a phone that's then sent into a database that tells you this is when the patient actually ingested the pill. Uh, and so that has happened. There are some privacy issues there. There's a lot of things that have to come into play, but are there opportunities for new technology uh, to help us? Are there ways for patient reported outcomes and trials to help us inform adverse event management and adherence? How do we use PROs uh, to really functionally improve adherence? in lots of ways? And how do we focus on our most challenging populations for adherence, particularly older patients and pediatric patients, particularly teenagers, uh, getting their therapy for cancer that, you know, again, we've got to make sure that we understand how their adverse events are managed and how we can help them, uh, you know, think about their drugs differently. Integrating technology would be very interesting. Uh, I I do think that uh, we could do a better job at that. Yeah. Um, what else did you guys come up with as well as proposed solutions and, uh, and, and what are next steps to implement these solutions? Yeah, so the solutions really are focused again on, on uh, data within FDA and data within, um, data within companies uh, to help really push things in different directions. So number one, put pharmacists at the center of things, whether it's policy or po- practice, uh, et cetera. Publish the data on adherence within publicly available areas in trials, because it's not going to get better. If adherence within a trial population is 90%, it's only going to go down in the general population. Make sure eligibility criteria reflect real world populations that are going to get the drug eventually. And that's true in so many different areas, but it impacts adherence as well. If you're excluding patients on all these drugs, it doesn't then, and patients are going to be allowed, are going to be taking those drugs in a post-approval state, make sure that that's done. Be transparent about this information. Have tools to find better tools uh, to help patients be adherent and to communicate more effectively. Check-ins, identify patients that are known to be the highest risk at non-adherence and focus efforts in institutions and in practices on them and make sure that they are the ones that are focused on helpfully and hopefully. And then finally, areas like uh, we know that tamoxifen and other and AIs, et cetera, the longer patients on a drug, the less adherent they'll be. How do we define optimal adherence and how do we help identify time points in a patient's journey and then intervene there? Um, those were all solutions that kind of came out of the workshop, made it into the paper. Some some did, some didn't. But I think at the end of the day, those are the big picture items. But one of the things I really loved about the paper that there were actual solutions that were easy to read. I mean, I was read. I'm like, you know what? Makes sense. I liked what these guys are saying. But, but now what? I guess what is, um, as I said, one of the unique things about that paper that we're talking about is it wasn't just outlining the problem because for me, uh, it's yan, yan, yan. I already know there's a problem. It had solutions. But what do you do next? Like, what, what is your next step? Do you have an, like, literally, do you have, um, say, we're going to do, we're going to check, we're going to take one of these and we're going to check in six months. Do you hire a project manager? I mean, I can tell that you guys really want to do something. Yeah. But tell me what are next steps? Yeah. So it's really looking at implementation science and a lot of it. And, and doing what, honestly, a lot of the folks at Chicago have done, Chadi, and looking at, all right, we've got these ideas. Now let's go to exactly the stakeholder do it. So I'm going to push on FDA to say, hey, look, I want you to change the way 
that you report data in drugs at FDA. I want adherence data to be expected in publications, in, um, in your data that's output. Number two, I want you know, HOPA, the Hemoc Pharmacy Association, um, we're pushing on them to say, look, we want a pharmacist in every institution to be driving oral agent use and adherence. You need to have adherence clinics or individuals that are focused solely on it and have that as a readout as part of a quality. Ask Ocopi, you know, have what practices within the quality programs have pharmacists looking at adherence for patients with cancer and that because that is associated with the highest success that this is data driven this isn't uh, me trying to promote my own profession this is information from multiple publications saying pharmacists driving this process make this process better therefore if you want to have quality certification you need to have a pharmacist doing this in your practice this is what will help patient outcomes. Go to, you know, go to areas that accredit it and look at various areas. So there are a few things that are being looked at. I don't know that we can hold pharma to bear right now, to be honest, to say maximize your formulation. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to start your trial. I don't think that's viable right now, but I do think there are ways to lean on and make it a bigger priority within pharma to to do those items earlier on and you know look at formulation differently so those are some of the other solutions but we've got to really nail them down Johnny. it's implementation science it's saying this is what we're going to do we're going to change formulation we're going to at the phase at the phase of trial you know we shouldn't be doing all this post-marketing look at regorafenib look at others that are changing dose and changing schedule post-marketing why can't we get that right early on well, you've entered healthcare on filters, so we're going to bring you back in six to eight months, Donald. We're going to ah. now, now, now. Listen, now you're in the Rolodex of the podcast, so which means that listeners are going to find out, and they're going to actually say, "Well, tell us what he did over the next uh, eight months." But we'll yeah. give you time. Yeah, we'll thank realize you. it does take time, actually, and it's really not easy. But um, I certainly really appreciate uh, all the efforts that are being done. Um, anything else we should cover or talk about um, before I let you go back? I know that uh, time is scarce, so I want to be very respectful of your time. Yeah, thank you, Chadi. I think just in general, thank you for having me on the podcast. I think this is a fantastic idea, a fantastic platform and forum for us to really uh, kind of roll up our sleeves and think about these things. And I would just ask that wherever you are, if you love your pharmacist, tell them and ask for more. Because I do believe that our profession has a huge role. I like that. If you love your pharmacist, tell them and ask for more. I, yeah. that's, I, I'm going to put that on Twitter. <laughs> Even better. Chadi, thank you so much. I can't, uh, I can't tell you how great it is to be on here. And thanks for banging the drum of adherence and the work we're all trying to do to make cancer better. Much appreciated. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate your support. Let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, by sending me an email to shadinabhan at outlook.com. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com and provide any input or ideas right there. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your dedication. And for that, I have t-shirts for you as loyal listeners just hit me up and I will send one to you right away.
uh, I also want to make sure you can watch these episodes on YouTube. So tune into that. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Rumi. Sit, be still, and listen. Patience is the key to joy. Until next time, take care.